Welcome to Breakthrough, a podcast series where we meet the entrepreneurs and innovators behind now famous companies like Deliveroo, Farfetch, Mumsnet, and Bulb to reveal the stories behind their industry transforming businesses. Brought to you by Second Home, Index Ventures, and Sifted, these talks were recorded at Second Home Clerkenwell Green as part of our Breakthrough Fortnight in London. In this podcast, Danny Reimer, partner at Index Ventures and early backer of Farfetch, and the company's board member chats to Jose Neves, founder of the staggeringly impressive $6 billion business, on moving from plucky startup status to public company and everything in between. So, Jose, let's talk about how you have always thought about the fashion industry and how you think um, so far ahead? Like what led you to structure your thinking in terms of an industry? <clears throat> so uh, thanks, thanks, Danny. Very complimentary words. And um, you're not giving me a choice. Otherwise, um, I would structure this differently. But um, <laughs> and um, yeah, no, I, I think it's... Um, I think I work in an industry I love, um, and um, I think that makes a big difference. So I started as a, a computer programmer um, when I was 19, and um, and because I'm, I'm from the north of Portugal, there's uh, many fashion businesses in, in that uh, part of the world, and um, I started working with fashion businesses. My, my grandfather... Um, had a shoe factory. I had man, many, you know, friends and family in, in the fashion industry. So, um, at the age of 22, um, I decided this is this is really an industry I love, and I decided to um, actually come to London and, and open a, a tiny shoe store um, and a brand called uh, Swear. You used to love Swear. Yes. Remember, I, I offered you a pair of Swears. I still have them. Bespoke Swears for you. I should have worn them tonight. <laughs> and. Um, and you know, over so that was 1996. Uh, so that's how old I am. And um, and uh, you know, through through the years, I've done um, a number of things in fashion. So I've been a shoe designer. I've been a, a trade show organizer at, at the point. A boutique owner. I opened a multi-brand boutique in Savile Row uh, called B Star. Um, and and I, I just love this industry. I, I love, um, I you know, the people. Um, it's full of, of characters, and uh, you, you all know the Anna Winters and and uh, and you know those those uh, famous iconic characters in in fashion. But but the reality is, um, it's the labor of love for for all of these people. You know, people normally don't start boutiques to to become to to be rich, right? Or they don't start they they don't decide to become designers to uh, to make tons of money, it's, it's it's really the labor of love. So, you find in this industry people that are really passionate about what they do. It's a very global industry, so it got me to to travel from a very young age and um, and establish a, a global uh, business. Even small brands are global. So, you know, you, you start a brand, suddenly you sell into Japan, you sell into LA, you sell into Scandinavia, and, and you get to see all of these places. Uh, so th- this this is an industry I love. So um, I've always been a, a little bit of an inventor, 
I think if we were if we were in the in the if we were all cavemen, I would be the guy trying to put two stones together and see what comes out of it. Uh, I wouldn't be the shaman or 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 uh, or, or, or maybe even the um, you know the the hunter or whatnot. I probably would be the, the geek of the of the cave. Um, I like inventing stuff. I just like um, coming up with new ways of of doing things. So to me. It just comes natural. So, um, so when I decided to start Farfetch, um, the idea was very simple. So we, we have all these um, amazing boutiques and designers all around the world, and they they're they're only open nine hours a day, um, you know, six days a week. Uh, but what they have is is uh, is relevant globally. Uh, what if we made this visible um, in in a digital platform to people who love fashion from, from all around the world, 24-7, seven, seven days a week. And this could really change the industry. So it was a very simple um, thought. And, um, but Josie, if I may interrupt, um, yes, you did say that at the time. But I think what's really interesting is that you had a grander vision for what, what the industry had to be. And you didn't just want to put the boutiques online. You had this vision of like how the industry would have to be reinvented as a result of technology. So I'm trying to get a sense of like, how did you, how did you think of that back then? And you continue to strive towards that goal. Um, <clears throat> yes, I, I think, you know, wh wherever um, I turn in, in, in this industry, I think it's true for many other, other industries. There's so much opportunity um, uh, you know, technology is is, is bringing us um, the chance to really um, make an industry so much better. Uh, fashion is the second most polluting industry in the world, just because we consume a ton of it. And um, and you know, technology uh, allows us to make well. First, supply meet demand much more efficiently, so we don't have to overproduce guessing, trying to guess what people are going to buy so we can make that much more efficient. Um, uh, we, we can, you know, give voice to local businesses that suddenly become global, global overnight. Um, you know, all, all of this stuff. And, and the, problem, the problem with us at Firefetch, as you know, you're a board member, is, is picking the, the things we want to do. It's, the problem has never been where is there any opportunities that, uh, that are out there. There's so many. And it's really a very vast industry that that is stuck. Um, still, I mean, if you think that the um, online penetration of high-end fashion, which is the the, the 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 world we operate in, is less than ten percent, so over ninety percent is still sold through physical stores that still operate like like uh, they were operating in the nineties. So, to me, it's like this: this uh, we we only see opportunity. Um, I mean, today, uh, uh, I'm looking at Susanna, um, we, we had, our team had a, a big offsite and we were, and, and the problem is picking, you know, the five things we want to do because they're 50. And we, we do see, and to us it comes natural. I, I, I don't know how to explain so, it. So if you, so if you're a student of, of the internet, and I know you are, you're, there's eBay and the direction that they took and Amazon. And I would I would say that you're probably more of a student of Amazon or you follow that path more than eBay. Can you just in your mind, what what is the difference of those strategies that they took um, and I how think, it applies to you? 
Yeah, so I think I'm going to add a third one, like Netflix, which, which uh, to me is really interesting. Um, so I think, you know, uh, eBay, um, eBay didn't care much about the customer experience. Um, to me, that was the biggest um, uh, pitfall. And they just assumed the forces of the marketplace would, uh, you know, sort it out. And they relied on, on customer reviews, on, um, on that powering the system. I think what Amazon did was to be absolutely maniac about the consumer experience and making sure that they vetted the sellers, making sure that they controlled logistics, whether outsourced or not, customer service, et cetera, et cetera. So all the, the user um, points in the, in the journey. Um, and I think Netflix is, is an evolution of that where they start, uh, like Amazon, as an aggregator of, um, of products, in this case, media. Um, but then they realized they had to create a brand, uh, a brand that really has, Amazon is one of the most valuable brands on earth, uh, but a brand that has an emotional connection with the consumer and that has original content that you don't find anywhere else. And now you have Amazon also doing that. So I think these three companies come from, you know, different angles to, to the marketplace and, and to the distribution um, model. So I'm a student of all three. So a lot of companies, for instance, would have, and entrepreneurs would have said, okay, I've done, you know, first approach is I'm going to get the best boutiques in the world and I'm going to enable them to sell online. Check. Then I'm going to talk to brands directly and say, hey, we can be an incredible partner for you because incidentally, you're not just going to your website, Mr. Gucci, Mrs. Gucci, but you're actually going to Farfetch as a whole. And so you can pick Gucci as well as Valentino, etc. So, you know, they would also decide to talk to the brands. But, you know, there are all these other pretty important um, approaches that you're taking, like store of the future, which you could think of as an extension. It's pretty intimidating. Um, but meanwhile, for you, it's a natural development of the industry. Um, I, I think Can you, know, you just mention what Store of the Future is? Sorry, uh, sure, 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 sure. Um, so Store Star of the Future is, um, is really our um, vision um, around how physical retail is going to converge with, with digital retail and how, how the, the physical star experience of the future is going, is going to take shape. And we've launched, um, we started with the idea three years and a half ago and this was before Amazon Go, this, this was before Alibaba's new retail, and, um, uh, and we just launched the pilot with Chanel in Paris, so in, in the main uh, flagship, they just refurbished the his, historical uh, Chanel star in Rue Cambon, and, um, and they're our partner uh, for that program, so it's fantastic to have you know, the, one of the best, the most elevated retailers in the world, because brands are retailers, they, that's, that's, they, they run retail businesses, um, do this with us, and it's pretty exciting. So I think, I think for us, you know, one, one of the values of Firefetch is, is be revolutionary. And, and for us, it's, it's really to, to think, you know, how is the world going to look like in, in five years' time, ten years' time? And I think that's really important. Um, even at early stages... 
uh, at early stages of a company. Uh, I think innovation is not something you do when you realize that um, that your business model is outdated. Um, that is too late by then. I think innovation is something you you have to do uh, constantly. And and for us, um, it's a big effort. It's a big you know financial effort. It's a big execution. This you know, focus bandwidth. Uh, effort and there are trade-offs because when you're innovating, you're not optimizing the core business, right? So there's all there's this, um, you know, we uh, we have a manifesto, an internal manifesto, which is innovation versus optimization. Um, but uh, but for me, it's, it's really how how will if you want to call Farfetch a marketplace, which for me is more than a marketplace, is a is a is a curated community, is a platform for an, an enabler for an entire industry. But okay. If you want to call it marketplace, the question is, how are the marketplaces of the future going to look like? Are they just going to be websites and apps? Are they going to be voice enabled? Are they going to be physical meets digital? And I think the, the answer, you know, three and a half, four years ago wasn't clear. I think today is quite clear. If you look what, what the best cutting edge, um, you know, marketplaces in the world are doing, Amazon and Alibaba, they're the Two best, you know, like the two most successful ones, they're investing massively in, in actually physical retail, and um, and I think um, you know someone has to do it in the high end fashion segment in luxury. It will be a different experience, so um, it won't be the Amazon Go experience. The idea that you go into a Chanel store, grab twenty bags, and, and run—that's <laughs> not going to happen. And that's not what Chanel wants, right? They they want to actually elevate the human interaction with our fashion advisors and so it's a different it's a completely different experience and someone is going to have to develop that product and we we want to be that company so it sounds like it was pretty simple here you are a visionary you went to see chanel and you know the deal was done no no no, it's not not no it's um no it's it's um to convince an industry that is especially Companies like Chanel, they're doing pretty well. You know, they have, you know, 10 billion turnover, I think, you know, something crazy like 20% net income, not even EBITDA. We're talking like, like bottom line. <laughs> it's, um, you know, rumor has it they're, they're valued at $100 billion or so. Even LVMH can't buy them. So <laughs> uh, that's, that's what the analysts say. I don't know. Um, but, um, you know, these companies are incredible. They're having a good time. So don't fix what isn't broken is, is the mantra. So when when you're talking to these uh, to these companies, it is very difficult. There's a lot of inertia, but um, yeah, so lots of Eurostar trips to Paris. Yeah, exactly. So I want to talk a bit about the deal making side of it. Uh, I remember that when I first met you, this company called Revolve was actually quite instrumental in uh, in Farfetch at the time. Of course, Revolve, I think, went public this week and is trading at two and a half billion. So you chose a good partner. Uh, but can you talk about that deal and why why that was an important deal in the history of Farfetch? Um, it's, it's uh, well, I, um, I'm good friends with, with the founders, with uh, Mike, uh, Mike and Michael. And it's so funny because I, as a shoe designer, I used to supply Revolve. So I used to sell sweat to Revolve, so I knew the guys. And they were, when we launched Farfetch in 2008 in Paris, they were at, at the dinner table. So we did a, a big party and a dinner, with dinner before the party. And, and, and they were next to me. So Michael was, was right there next to me. 
And, um, you know, and I, and he, he said, oh, this is really interesting. And I said, well, I, I'd love to launch this in the, in the US, but I have no money. I have no team. Uh, I didn't have any round of venture funding by, by, um, by our first round of venture funding was in 2010. This was two years before that. So listen, I have no money. Like we have to do a JV, a joint venture. And, uh, and we almost. Had you sh- done a joint, ve- like how did no, you no, know what a joint like, venture was? I, I read in have a Business Review, maybe. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, like, and this was October. In November, I was jumping on the plane going to L.A. and closing the deal with the guys. And, and that's why the, the largest office, the largest Firefetch office is in L.A. Everyone asks us, why L.A.? Why didn't you go to New York or the Silicon Valley? And, and it's historical reasons because Revolve was, was based there. And we were sharing offices with them, sharing everything with them. It was a pretty stupid deal, by the way, which you forced me to unravel before you invested. You said, oh, I'm not investing until you get your US partners out. <laughs> <laughs> they, I think they, 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 you know, it was very amicable and the guys were amazing, but they, they, they sold cheap. Yeah. They sold cheap. And, um, but uh, yeah, no, as we, we um, you know, we, we learned through, through the years and with, uh, with some, you know, mistakes. I mean, the Revolve JV was not a mistake. The structure was a mistake. So it was a 50-50 JV for what would be the largest market for Firefetch in the world. You just don't do that, right? <laughs> but, you don't give 50% of, of the largest market to the world with a, with a, to a partner that um, you don't know. But, um, you know, we, you, you learn as you go and as you do more of these and you, as you have people like Danny yeah, saying, no. okay, mate, ne- <laughs> next time you do one of these, uh, talk to me. Um, and um, but, yeah. I, but I actually, I mean... You know, to your point, you had nothing at the time in 2008. It got you to the U.S. It's still the largest office you have in the U.S. As a result of it, you have a great relationship with them. I think a lot of entrepreneurs and people who start companies are very suspect and worried about doing deals. You know, like, am I going to distract myself? Is it going to be the right deal? Am I going to have to unravel it? Am I, you know, compromising the future? But you've actually, you know, plunged into many of these. So how how do you think about deal making? Is it is it a core strategy of yours? I think I think it should be a core strategy of any company because we live in in an era of partnerships. So companies they have to partner with each other. If you think, um, you know. Um, uh, Google powers search in on iPhones, right? There's no way Apple can can you know rebuild a search engine. So even you know the 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 rivals or the big rivals in the industry, ultimately they <clears throat> they have to partner. So so to me, you know, developing this muscle of being able to spot, especially when you're going international, regional partnerships in difficult markets where you need local expertise. Um, are are different categories where um, where you don't have you know it's too hard to build it in house. I think it is it is uh, really important. And is this something that the team focuses on, or that you want to take ownership of? I mean, is it something that you can uh, delegate, or is it is it actually too core to what the company is all about? So I think the the answer is a bit nuanced because I think you do need a team that is able to um, to cut the noise and and 
because when you get to a certain size, there are many startups or, or even big companies, you know, sending you emails and reaching out and, um, and, and that could be very distracting of management. So you do need, in our case, is our strategy team um, and partially the, the finance team. We have a, um, a small corporate finance um, department. Uh, now, when it comes to the big deals that are really transformational for the company, I think it has to be the CEO. Uh, I don't think um, having like an SVP or corporate development or uh, to me, uh, we can see that that's, it doesn't make sense because, uh, you know, it has to be the CEO. Normally, these deals are CEO to CEO. Um, and um, it's, it, if you have a guy that is very senior and that, his or her own, you know, purpose, sole purpose is to close deals, the danger is you're going to close too many deals, right? Because <laughs> they have to justify, uh, and they're just passionate about it. So so I think I, absolutely a team that is able to speak to hundreds of startups and, and evaluate the opportunities and do the due diligence, you need to have it. But the the... You know, the, you know, the person that then needs to speak CEO to CEO and, and see, do, is this something we really want to do uh, and close the deal, I think, I think needs to be the founder. And how many levers, I mean, you can't really optimize everything, right, to get a deal done. So You're, you're a master in that, right? No, no. <laughs> Please. Um, no, so so talk about that. Like, talk about JD or Stadium Goods. Yes, or, I think it doesn't I think, have I mean, to be specific, but it, it's it's helpful if it is. Yeah, well, one of the things I learned is is um, you know when doing a deal, you have to you know I always think about okay, there are one or two things that I absolutely need to get out of this deal, and those are the non-negotiables for me. We don't need to show the cards to, to the other party, of course, and then. You also need to set a limit in terms of financial terms, like, okay, this is how far I'm going to go um, before you actually get in the heat of the of the action because otherwise, uh, after the emotions get involved, you could pay to higher price. But, but you know, having having a clear picture of this is why I'm doing this deal and and this is absolutely what I need to, to get out of. And, you know, the rest is completely secondary. Because what I see, and I see that uh, when I involve the team and, and they start coming up, okay, what about this and why don't we introduce this in the term sheet? Oh, let's also add that. Oh, uh, what about if we ask for that because they could also give us and it's, you know, why not? And it just, it just complicates things. And then the psychology, the other party gets mixed signals. So suddenly the other side, they don't understand, you know, what, what is important for us. So I think... Um, and I think also putting ourselves in the other side's shoes, you know, it, it needs to be a good deal, um, you know, for everyone. You know, if it's too good a deal for you, you should ask yourself why. So it's, it's um, you know, a deal where both sides make an effort and are slightly uncomfortable is probably where, where the sweet spot is. Um, and uh, is there any deal that you regret that you did? Well, not, that's not, not not yet, not yet. No, I think um, you know. I think some were super successful. Others are, are, are successful, and um, others are very very early. Um, you know, we we don't know yet. Um, but you also need to um, to be prepared to take risks, and you're going to have a, a percentage of um, of failures, and and that that should be fine. So let's move on to uh, internal culture. Um, so have you brought some of those elements of where you grew up into the culture and, um, can we talk about that a bit? 
Yeah, actually, we we have um, we have six values. Uh, one is be human. Um, so I'll I'll say the the the, the 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 one that is relevant to your question in the end. So uh, be human, be brilliant, think global, uh, be revolutionary, amaze customers, and todos juntos, which is uh, in Portuguese, and it's uh, it means all together. So teamwork, um, team spirit. Um, it's really interesting because we we were doing the the company um, values uh, workshops and offsites, and we spent about two days. Um, all all the like fifty people in the room. All the this was like six seven years ago, um, and um, and the the group that came up with the Todos Juntos idea didn't have any Portuguese in the group. And I was I was passing by, and they called me and said, "Jose, come here. How, how do you say all together in Portuguese? Todos juntos." So they scribbled, "Okay, what are, what are these guys, you know, thinking?" And and then they presented to to the rest of us. I think we sh we think one of the values should be in Portuguese because we have uh, roots. You know, we have you know the company started in Portugal and in the UK. So yeah, we we uh, I think there there is. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, there, there is a um, uh, you know some some infusion of uh, some magic but, in there. Some magic in there. And um, why did you decide to do um, that deep dive six seven years ago into company values? Um, <clears throat> so uh, you know, I always you know when when you start a startup, um, you're too busy. You know, you're too busy signing your first customers and and. You know, Finding your tech team and developing your product, um, you know, getting getting funded, um, and I think culture and values are um, to me they, they were a little bit stuff for management books and and for academics and and, and you know to talk about it, and um, I didn't really feel that I needed to work on 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 culture and values. I thought okay, it's like just carry on and um, <clears throat> and I think actually it's true in, in my opinion that until you're maybe you know 100 people in your company you actually um, probably is is, um, is overkill to stop everyone and do you know two days offsite and think about culture and the values you can do it but the, the reality is people are leaving the values because they're all in the you know in the same office it's a small team if you're 10, 20, 30 people, the founder is in the middle of of, um, of everyone or the co-founders or, you know, like everyone feels that energy and and the culture is unspoken. So every company has, has a culture, whether they, they like it or not. Um, <clears throat> when you get to, in our case, I can't remember, maybe 120, 130 people. Um, <clears throat> um, we, I remember the the... The red alert, like the red light, came from. We we actually had um, uh, a key hire uh, that we did for the management team uh, that didn't work out. So this person came in uh, from a big company, and we thought um, she would add a lot of value, and we couldn't believe that she wanted to work for us. Wow, this was like incredible, and you know she couldn't stand it. She couldn't, you know, everything was a problem. She couldn't stand the offices, the location. I mean, she interviewed in our offices, but she only found out. And, and I think she, she was being genuine, I don't think. And, and what I realized is that I was, you know, through the interview process, I was pitching my company um, to her, and she was pitching uh, herself to us. 
without really articulating what the culture of the company is. So, so she, it's, it's my fault, not hers, right? So she couldn't guess what she was going to find. Um, and, uh, and it was very traumatic because for, for everyone. So, um, I mean, it was amicable and everything, but it, it shook the team and it, it, it took a little while for, for us to recover uh, some of the folks in the team that were bruised by, by the whole exercise and all of that. So, so that was the, the point where I think, okay, you know what? We, we really need to work on codifying, verbalizing, writing down what are the cultures of values and values of this company so that it is crystal clear for new people who are going to join what are they going to, to what, what should they expect? And we should be much more candid, much more honest and transparent about the, the culture we have. And then, um, you know, people may like it or, or not. Um, so we did that. So we, we, uh, we had uh, someone helping us. Um, but, but it's really, and, and then the, to me, what was fascinating is that the, the whole exercise consists and um, actually, we did that today in our offsite. The whole exercise consists in going back in time and think about the moments um, of the life of your company where you were really great. You know, the, the moments that you're really, really proud about. And, uh, and then think about the behaviors and the traits and the spirit, um, the team spirit that you experienced in those moments. So what were the things in your culture that, um, that made you achieve those, things, those, those moments? Uh, so it's not about what company do you want to be or let's change the way we are. No, it's actually the opposite. It's like, okay, you already have a great culture. You haven't found, you know, you haven't verbalized it. What, are, what is the DNA of your company? And you find it by by uh, going back to your wins, your successes, celebrating them and saying, okay, in these moments, we were living these values. These, these were the behaviors we were demonstrating. And uh, and it's really powerful. I think, in, in, you know, we, we just did a Humu. We work with them. Um, some of you maybe work with them as well, with Humu. Um, they they have a great uh, methodology and tool to uh, to do internal surveys and and pull surveys and 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 measure uh, what's important for your team and how you're faring over time and uh, and we consistently score really really high on culture and values and this is something that is now part of the language of the company and uh, the people know it by heart we people invented they came up with little stickers, each sticker is a value and they give them to each other and, and they stick them on their laptops and uh, it's, 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 it's pretty, pretty powerful, I think. Super. All right, folks, I will turn it over if someone has a burning question. Yeah, please in the back. Uh, hey, Jose, I'm Michael from Chattermall. We are a CX provider. Um, it's a question about customer experience. Um, what is the biggest challenge for understanding what your customers think and feel about your brand? Um, I think, you know, the, the biggest challenge is how do, we, um, how do we combine the expectations of a, of a, a luxury customer with, uh, with, um, with the marketplace model. So the marketplace model... By definition, you don't own the inventory, you don't own the operations or, or the warehouses or, or, or anything. Um, yet, your consumer doesn't care, right? Your consumer you know, wants it fast, 
impeccably packaged. Um, once you are, you know, customer service staff to be uh, to know exactly what's what's going on. Um, that is extremely extremely hard, and um, this is something. That, this is one of the secret sauces of Firefetch, which uh, very. I'm glad you asked the question because very you know, few people. Um, talk about that and realize. I mean, it's it's when people say, "Oh, what stops anyone from replicating a model?" It's it's extremely hard because uh, we have real time visibility of inventory. We have uh, centralized management of logistics with dozens of um, um, you know both international and last mile delivery. We have same day delivery in eighteen uh, global cities. We have ninety minutes delivery in ten cities. We don't outsource customer service. Never, you know, all the customer service uh, staff are, are employed by us because they need to know, we're selling luxury, they need to know, you know, what Valentino is, right? And and if we would outsource that, we would we would have a very disjointed um, process. So even doing all of that, um, it, 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 we still need to, you know, fight very hard and work very hard uh, to provide customers with that um, with that level of experience, we have you know a very very high uh, you know net promoter score, you know same same level or sometimes above than other luxury retailers. So we're very happy with that. Um, but you know we, we're conscious that there's so much to do on the customer experience. Still, we still have the the occasional uh, horror story, which you know like <laughs> I, I lose my sleep over, but. Um, uh, and, we, and we absolutely need to get better and better and better at that. But um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a crucial um, ingredient for um, if, we, if we want to be successful. Thank you. So, folks, as you can witness, uh, it's been such a privilege to work with Jose over these years. And Jose, thank you for being so open uh, and generous with your answers. And uh, thank you to Second Home for inviting us to do this. And thank you all for being so attentive. And see you later. Breakthrough is Creative Workspace Second Home's year-round educational program designed to help members make their dent in the universe. If you enjoyed this talk, check out what else is coming up at secondhome.io or follow us at at underscore IO. Second home, a workspace as creative as you are.